Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of SG Explained. My name's Elliot and joining me as always, my favorite host of all time, Vovic. What's up, what's up? Actually, you've been very active with a lot of other podcasts. Big kudos to you. You know, I've been pretty active on Clubhouse as well. It's also a voice platform. It's basically, you remember IRC where people would just jump into chat rooms and... That's how old we are. Yeah, Clubhouse is basically an audio version of IRC and I've actually been going around hosting and moderating different rooms. Dude, that's awesome, man. We have a pretty exciting episode for you guys today. We're going to be talking a bit about one of our biggest telcos, if not the biggest telco that we have in Singapore, none other than our good friends at Singtel. Singtel is quite a ubiquitous name in Singapore. And Elliot, you know, I just wanted to point out that in all the episodes you've been doing recently, you've been selecting, you know, homegrown brands. I feel a very strong sense of uh, FG business pride in you. For sure. Wait till my next episode. I already kind of planned it out today because I was doing some research. So Singtel is, is such a fascinating topic because it's a big telco, right? And in today's age where it's all about disruption, Singtel is sort of seen as like the big conglomerate that people are trying to, to usurp. It's very difficult when you have literally the, the word Singapore in your name, like Singtel, that tends to be like the flagship. We're going to go through some of its early history. It has a very strong and I would say a pretty interesting past, the way it's developed alongside Singapore as we do with all our episodes, uh, really shows uh, how we've developed in uh, such expedited ways. Uh, when we look at Singtel today, what do we see, right? We've seen a brand that has grown across probably maybe a hundred years now. Why don't we jump right into it? Uh, sit on tight, folks. Let's get some learning. The telephone. It was first introduced in Singapore in 1879. Right? Do you remember telephones, Rovic? Well, you you mean like landlines? Like landlines, landlines. We still have a landline in my house. We removed our landline in like probably 2008. We take it for granted that it was only invented maybe 200 years ago. It came to Singapore being more household in nature in like 1879. And this was the first inception, right? Where there were only like 15 line exchanges that was set up by uh, Bennett Pell, the local manager of the Eastern Extension Telegraph Company. And it was reported that uh, Singapore uh, was the first city in the East to have a telephone system. That's pretty mad that in the whole of the East, Singapore was the first city to have a telephone system. <laughs> yeah, super interesting, right? So like in July 1882, about three years later, uh, Singapore's phone network was operated by the Oriental Telephone and Electric Company, also known as OTEC. This company constructed its first public telephone exchange with facilities for 60 telephone lines linking business houses like uh, Ben May & Co, a Chartered Bank, and the Singapore Stock Exchange. So just by mentioning these three brands alone or these companies alone, you can tell, right, what's one of the main impetuses for setting up these headlines is really just for business. And you have to remember how telephones used to look like back then, right? It was literally switchboards where a line would be connected from your business to the switchboard. And, you know, you would call, you would call the number, the switchboard would say, who are you trying to connect to? Uh, and once they find out who you're connecting to, they'll just move the, the line from the switchboard to to that person's line. It was like an operator had to be seated there in order to make this connection happen. It was like this for a while and obviously... Uh 60 telephone landlines don't seem like a lot, but because it's it's really a network, uh, they were able to link up like crucial and key businesses at the start. Uh, so for like in 1907, OTEC was actually replaced uh, by the new Central Telephone Exchange in Hill Street. And this is going to be a, a pretty key marker for a while uh, where the telephone service in Singapore was automated in April 1930. So it really took us quite a fair bit of time before we managed to even say like, okay, we don't need operators anymore. And it's coming more and more of a household and also like a business 
essential. This is like the early days. And by the time we get to December 1937, the telephone service went international and inaugurated the first call connected between London and Singapore. 50 over years since the inception of the first line to make an international call. In 1955, many years later, the network was taken over by the British colonial government, as we all know. And this established the first Singaporean brand, right? The Singapore Telephone Board, also known as STB. Not to be confused for our STB of today, the Singapore Tourism Board. Yeah, this was the OG STB. The STB merged with the Telecommunication Authority of Singapore in 1974 to form telecoms. And this entity then merged with the Postal Service Department in 1982. Singapore installed its one millionth phone line by 1990. By the time I was born, from 50 landlines, we had come to one million phone lines in 1990. And in 1994, one of the first countries in the world to have complete digital telephone network. Maybe now we're going to just dive in a little bit deeper to think about uh, each of the, you know, the little steps along the way. So from the mid-1980s, the Singapore government had considered privatizing telecoms, right? Uh, which was the successor to the STB. Telcoms was basically projected to be listed on the stock exchange in 1989 as part of the three-year corporatization program. Telcoms is restructured and renamed Singapore Telcom. So that's where Singtel comes because Singtel is basically an amalgamation of the word Singapore and Telcom. The organization was revamped to be more commercially focused and customer service oriented with a number of strategic business units set up. But a financial year ending in 1989, Telcoms was the most profitable stat board with a total net income of $620 million. And the corporatization program culminated in the establishment of Singtel in 1992. Similar to some of the episodes we've done, especially one of our more recent episodes on POSB, you see the similar trend, right, where uh, what is considered national necessity, right? So back for POSB, it was a neighborhood banking system. Here it's public utility, which is telecommunications, basically telephone lines. And once you're able to get it to a certain scale, the government of the day realized, let's be a bit more savvy about this, let's privatize and let the market sharpen the business model of the company. And so they said, instead of being a stat board, which was what Telcoms was, it would move on to become a private entity, right? A commercial entity. The same way, you know, Lee Kuan Yew had this vision for Singapore Airlines, his famous words where, you know, they might be the national carrier, but if they fail, then they will fail because that's the market in, in essence, right? So very similar trends. And I kind of like it because like in October 993, uh, when Singtel announced its IPOing, right? The initial public offering through state investment company like Tomasic Holdings, the government initially offered a 1.1 billion share stake for sale to Singaporeans with a series of discounts and loyalty bonuses. This was subscribed by 4.1 times and Tamasic had to add another 587 million shares to help meet the overwhelming demand. And after the float, the government still held around 89% of Singtel through Tamasic Holdings. This has not happened for all the other stories we covered like POSB and, and SQ. Um, but for Singtel, you know, they wanted ownership at least in some part, by the Singapore people. I think the story here is that Singtel was such a popular stock option, right? Because people realized that the future of telecom was still very bright. And, you know, Tomasic Holdings will come out in a lot of these conversations on Singapore homegrown brands only because Tomasic Holdings is basically the government's holding company. It's an asset holding company. It does investment as well. It does commercial investments. But primarily, it started off as an asset holding company to hold companies like Singtel, Singapore Airlines, DBS, in order to represent the government's strong 
interest in that company. So even though it's commercially uh, focused, because of the government's interest in it, it will continue to also serve a national purpose. That's really the dynamic that's happening here. So on 1st November 1993, Singtel debuted on the stock exchange of Singapore with more than 1.4 million Singaporeans, as well as foreign and local institutions acquiring shares in the company. With a share capital of 15.25 billion shares and a market cap of around 60 billion at the time, Singtel became the largest company listed on the stock exchange. Further tranches of Singtel shares were released for public sale in subsequent years, including 804 million shares in 1996. So from the very beginning, Singtel was one of Singapore's largest companies, and it then used that capital raise to embark on investing in network infrastructure and new technologies. So in late 1993, the company announced it would pump $3.7 billion into systems and facilities, such as an optical fiber network, digitization of the telephone network, and digital submarine cable links over the next five years. Singtel invested $661 million on upgrading, including $317 million on transmission equipment and $57 million on building. Telco game tends to be, at least back in the day, a hugely infrastructure play. If you look at countries like the US or countries like Japan, because they're so big, you can have multiple telcos kind of fighting. What they're basically fighting for is where they can build infrastructure and build equipment. Right. And so, for example, in the US, someone could say, I'll just take care of the East and someone will say, I'll take care of the West. And you can still monopolize those regions more or less. And you earn back later on because of the investments made. You basically need a sufficient level of scale in order to earn back. But in Singapore, because of how small it is, uh, you could only have one. And so Singtel was the only company that was basically building and investing in the infrastructure, but it was also able to earn back on it because hey, no one else is out there. They were a monopoly, like without no fight at all. No one had that kind of uh, governmental support, that kind of investment buy-in as well. They're spending billions of dollars in the early 90s. Think about inflation now. A few billion dollars nowadays is still a lot of cash. There is a mix of public use and public good that's being achieved through such investments, but it's also trying to make sure that the business model exists by keeping it as a commercial entity. In the 1980s, Singtel set up Singapore Telecoms International, a subsidiary that would provide consultancy and operation services overseas. So it realized that, again, in order to make back some of uh, the money on its investments, it would take the expertise as developed and go overseas. So they partnered other telecom companies such as AT&T, which is an American telecom company, and British Telecom in the areas of marketing and service alliances. And basically, this international strategy was geared towards equity investment, joint ventures, and SDI had invested $470 million in mobile services and cable television services in over 23 joint ventures and investments in countries like Sri Lanka, Australia, Norway, and the US, including shares acquired in Globe Telecom in the Philippines. That's a really smart plan overall. It's, you can see how methodical they are in trying to make sure that Singtel... Uh, really is up to date with not just like local trends but global trends trying to keep themselves uh, sharp and also to kind of like future proof themselves this is pretty helpful for us to kind of like frame uh, why like if we go and think about you know themselves in 1996 where the government informed Singtel that it would end the company's monopoly in the telecommunications market with effect from 1st April 2000 when you have that much power <laughs> and you have that much comparative advantage against any kind of new player in the field, you need some sort of intervention, right? And this is a very clear signal uh, from the government's part to say, you know, monopolies are great when you're starting out. Once it's too big, it requires 
uh, some form of moderation. The infrastructure play is kind of over, right? So, so far, we've seen two key chapters in Singtel's history. The first is pre-1993, where it's the founding of some of the telecom operators and building of infrastructure. 1993 to 2000, where it's really about the commercial focus and making sure that Singtel sharpens a business model, but it's still, you know, focused on infrastructure development, digitization. But then in 2000, what's happened is that, hey, there's enough infrastructure. And now some of the focus areas are on services, right? So it's about stuff like international direct dialing, some of the other telecom services, cable services that are starting to come out. And uh, Singtel's ownership of the infrastructure should not mean that it also monopolizes the services. So that was where the government basically said, all right, you can no longer be the monopoly. You can no longer be the sole provider in mobile services. Instead, you will have to open yourself up to competition. People should be allowed to rent off some of the infrastructure that you've been using. So as a result, the company received $1.5 billion in compensation from the government for the early implementation of full market liberalization. There was already a communication at that point that there would be liberalization, but the government felt we don't need to wait too long. In fact, if if we do wait too long, Singtel may continue to have a disproportionate advantage and may, it may create more barriers to entry later on. So they said, now is the right time. And actually came at a very opportune moment. Remember the two, early 2000s, it's the internet age. We are starting to, to move away from things like dial-up already. So The dot-com. It was the dot-com era already. And, you know, I think it came at just the right turning point where they allowed a whole new market. Singtel, they had prepared for competition with more aggressive marketing strategies since they didn't really have to invest back in like infrastructure or like they don't have to rent from anyone, right? They're just basically using their own things. In a bidding for the basic telephone license in 1997, Starhub and Singapore Technologies Telemedia were cited as the hot favorites by analysts. So even in those like early days, uh, we're starting to see people who, uh, you know, who, who really want to be part of the game. Uh, and to get ahead of the competition, Singtel deployed Data Warehouse, a database that analyzed customer profiles and enabled better reach with innovative product and services. However, their rival M1 deployed a very similar strategy. Singtel also began offering like these commercial internet services through this thing called Singnet in 1994. From 1,500 users at the end of 1994, a Singnet subscriber base had grown to 100,000 by mid-1996. Uh, that year, Singtel made a foray into content provision and broadcasting, offering video on demand channels through both its telephone system and uh, cable networks. I'm just thinking about back in the day, right? Because I remember dial-up, which was probably what Signet was trying to do. I'm not sure what provider my dad uh, got for us, but... I hated dial-up. Like, I'm so glad we're, we're in a broadband era right now, a wireless yeah. era. But basically, this competition was what pushed Singtel to, to go into that, right? It said, we need to provide a full suite of services. We need to find more ways to get people to use our telecom services rather than anyone else's. And so Singtel's internet service was one of those things. Uh, the other one was, of course, cable TV. Now we're so used to Netflix, right? But back then you had to get a box. The box would connect and you would get exclusive shows just because you had that box. And that was a whole different era. <laughs> Singtel's investment into infrastructure did not stop. That's, again, because Singtel primarily was known for its infrastructure play. So in August 1998, Singtel launched its first satellite, 
right? So it, it went even bigger than ever before. It launched a $425.3 million satellite in a joint venture with Taiwan's Chunghua Telecom. The satellite was designed to support both broadcasting and telecom services, and it became operational three months later in November 1998. Singtel had envisaged that the use of the satellite would help to lower the cost for services such as direct-to-home television and cable TV. So again, you have to remember that previously, it may have had a lot of the infrastructure on the ground, but it still needed to probably get some of these services from other satellites, right? It's probably paying for services and other satellites. And then it said, you know, since we have so much volume anyway, let's just build and, and deploy our own satellite. It does take a lot of foresight to want to expand upwards and onwards because, you know, they could have easily just fought on the, on the local grounds, but instead they looked in places which those guys couldn't reach, making these big investment capital plays to work with partners overseas. We're starting to see the evolution of Singtel from a developer into a, a, a full-force corporate entity that's uh, making investments, acquiring stakes. So in 2000, Singtel concentrated on acquiring stakes in various telecom companies in developing economies so that it would drive the company's growth. And it looked to expand via acquisitions and mergers. So it explored potential bids for Malaysian cellular company Pinariang and Taiwanese company Chunghua Telecom that we just mentioned. It also engaged in unsuccessful merger talks with Hong Kong's cable and wireless uh, HKT. It also conducted joint ventures with Virgin Management to set up Virgin Mobile Asia, as well as clinching a 30% stake in India's Bharti Group. And Bharti Group is a huge telecom group in India. You have to remember the population there. Now, what was interesting is that in 2001, Singtel announced a big offer to buy over Australia's cable and wireless Optus. And the $13.6 billion deal was successful. But as a result of this, Singtel had to float on the Australian stock exchange in September 2001. Again, because of the size of the deal. So in Australia, cable and wireless Optus was renamed to Singtel Optus. So that's a Singapore brand now as, as a legitimate offering in Australia, yeah, that's a lot of, of power that it has, a lot of influence. Uh, this continued with stakes in Indonesia's Telkom Cell in 2001, Pacific Bangladesh Telkom in 2005, and Pakistan's Wari Telkom in 2007. So it's, you know, it's just going around it saying, you know, we maybe have squeezed as much growth as we probably could within Singapore. The next few years or the next, I guess, the future of Singapore growth may not be as much as we want for our shareholders. And so they went into the developing market. Market. They went into places uh, where maybe there's a lot more opportunity and they, they just play the investment game. When we think about like the Port Authority, it's something we've done very similarly. We did everything we could infrastructurally within Singapore itself. And now we offer those services by running ports overseas as well, right? We make these joint ventures. We go into there and say like, hey, we have the expertise. We've run very successful ventures of our own. Why not we partner up and uh, kind of spread our reach, but also make more of a investment play? This was a very clear sign to me that Singtel was very confident in what they were willing to offer uh, because of their success in Singapore. In 2001, you know, the government announced that it would give up its veto on Singtel's board. This really is sort of like a hands-off approach now saying, okay, we recognize Singtel as a full-fledged corporate entity. It's privatized. And they, they were ready to divest some of its 78% stake in the company. By December 2004, overseas operations and investments accounted for 75% of total revenue. And these various acquisitions resulted in revenue of about $3.23 billion, despite an 11% fall in earnings. That's an insane amount of money. It's such a 
incredible amount of growth for a company. So far, we've been seeing a focus on the telecom business. It's a bit more traditional in a lot of ways. You have some ventures into broadcasting, into internet services, into mobile services. But in 2003, in order to concentrate on its core business, Singtel sold 69% of its investment in the Singapore Post, and it divested completely its interest in Yellow Pages. Do you remember Yellow Pages? Does anyone remember the Yellow Pages? I don't know what they do now, dude. <laughs> I just remember. I remember having thick books and you would like flip it to find like business contacts. Now you have Google. In the years that followed, media content provision became Singtel's core business. A content and media services group was created for the television, advertising and digital content markets, including the launch of an advertising services arm. A web portal called insing.com. And this is, you know, I, I remember it kind of looking like Yahoo and, and stuff like that. And an AMPED, A-M-P-E-D, a music download service for mobile subscribers. And this is, you know, pre-Spotify. So it's really going into multimedia. As you mentioned, Elliot, one of its key strategies was to focus on the football market, right? Or, or the soccer market for our American listeners. And the idea was that because Singapore has such a big viewership for the soccer league, included as part of its content strategy, Mio TV. So Mio TV was a paid television service that secured exclusive rights to broadcast English Premier League football in Singapore. It actually snatched that deal from rival StarHub in 2009, and that coup cost Singtel close to $400 million. This boosted Mio TV's subscriber base from 87,000 in 2008 to 292,000 in 2011. Besides the direct revenue from subscribers, Singtel's media offerings and Mio TV also resulted in revenue streams from advertising. It's such a smart play to say, actually, we just need a high signature event in order to anchor a lot of our subscribers. And it chose sports, right? It chose football to, to be that. That was an insane play because by 2010, around 25% of Singtel's Singapore revenue came from non-carriage services. That's a, that's a, a whole quarter of your revenue. Uh, and this is not just besides like the media content provision, right? But Singtel also ventured into info communication services such as like cloud computing uh, and with plans, you know, at that point in time to become an Asia-Pacific market leader in that sector. This is this is clear foresight from Singtel's part to say we need to think about how we're going to do like data storage uh, online rather than offline in the early days. Still, in Singapore, like Singtel remained the leading operator with about 3.2 million users and a 46.4% market share. Today, it provides four main kinds of services. It has internet service providing uh, Singtel TV, which is basically its internet protocol TV, uh, mobile phone networks, and fixed line telephony services. And right now it controls significant market share in, in, in the Asia Pacific. Within Singapore, it controls 82% of the fixed line market, 47% of the mobile market, 43% of the broadband market, all within Singapore. It's the second largest company in Singapore by market cap after DBS. And it has become a giant of a company since its inception. We also know, you know, from some of our previous episodes that it has started to venture into spaces like esports, into spaces like digital media and digital content. And so it's constantly going to continue evolving in order to to be relevant. They had a view as one of them for your Korean TV shows. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they had Hook for a while, even though that's kind of like dissolved under the radar. Even in 2011, you know, Singtel wanted to launch like an ebook provider called Scoob. They're just putting their money in a lot of like places which they feel there is potential for growth. You know, every time we have Olympics 
they've secured broadcast rights. Uh, 2012 being one of them, you know, uh, they provide like ESPN Star Sports channels for free. So many different plays across the board. And I don't think I have all the information about how many of these plays they've done. So that's a big part of their identity now, right? That investment attitude, because they realize the best thing that they have at the core, besides their infrastructure and assets, is their capital, right? And so what they did was that they set up a subsidiary called Innovate, and that was founded in 2011 with this foresight to say, instead of trying to build everything ourselves, let's invest, let's take a stake in some of these up-and-coming companies. It started out with $300 million in startup capital back then, and it just started investing. And that's the attitude that Singtel takes with regards to growth and expansion, even the future of it, right? So they just got a new CEO. The new group CEO is Yuan Kwan Moon, and he took over actually this month in January of this year. He completely took over as, as a group CEO. And he was from the consumer business, right? So he was looking at stuff like mobile broadband, TV services, uh, as well as most importantly, and this was what people were saying on the news, he was also responsible for driving Singtel's digital transformation as his chief digital officer. So it's saying, you know, maybe our telecom business it will continue to provide it as as part of the core, but the growth is in digital. And so because he was looking at it and because Singtel is sending a signal to shareholders, right, that we're going to continue caring about the digital future of the economy, they made him the group CEO. And so that's a a huge signal. And this comes right after like December 4th, uh, last year only, they announced that they are good partners like Grab Consortium. Uh, They had awarded a digital banking license and they would start operating in 2022. So there's this whole idea of moving into uh, spaces that Grab is in as well. You know, the whole idea of having digital wallets and whatnot. So we've talked a lot about uh, all the good stuff, but we have to remember, you know, that it wasn't all like sunshine and roses uh, as we do with all these big companies a lot of the times. And uh, they've come under fire at several points. Uh, even not, I'm not talking about like small things, like, you know, the whole rebranding exercise and whatnot. One that was quite big in 2013 was the Bukit Panjang exchange fire. This happened all the way in like 2013 where like a fire broke out at our, one of our major internet exchanges at Bukit Panjang. Uh, this was a pretty long fight. Relatively long, right? And relatively big scale as well because they are trying to protect something which is pretty much infrastructural resource. This fire on that day on 9th October, it started around 2pm and the SCVF responded to emergency at around like 216 took them about another 20 minutes uh, after the fact to extinguish out the fires and only had cleared the building for access at 6pm. So about four hours before any sort of investigation uh, inside could be done. You know, Singtel started repairing the damaged cable infrastructures. Uh, the repair was initially assessed to be done about a day later, you know, 10 October, with 33 cables of fibre strands uh, requiring repairs. However, the repairs were slower than expected as it was difficult to identify the affected cables as visual indicators, such as uh, color coding on the cables as they were rendered unusable, and 116 other fiber cables required repair as well. You have to remember that Singapore is very, very dependent on the internet, on mobile services, and so when... When something like this happens, people are going to be pissed. You can't even tweet your displeasure. The damage incurred extensive connectivity issues, but mostly in the northwestern area of Singapore. It was reported that around 60,000 fixed broadband lines and 46,000 new TV subscribers and 30,000 voice lines were also affected. Our fiber optic company, OpenNet, also reported that 81 of its fiber cables were damaged, affecting almost 46,000 thousand fiber connections downstream businesses such as 
Starhub, M1, DBS, OpenNet, and even Singapore Pools saw varying levels of disruption to the services and operations island-wide. Oh no, people can't gamble. Yeah, people can't buy their 40 online. Singtel owns most of the infrastructure, takes care of most of the infrastructure. So even Starhub, right, which is a competitor, indicated that some of its repaired open net cables, which it relied on to carry its fiber internet services, were not connected properly. So Singtel had to announce compensation packages to its affected subscribers, really just to placate and recognize the, the impact it had made on the subscribers. Because as you mentioned earlier, a lot of these people, they're relying on telecom services, on fiber services, in order to not just live and, and connect with people that they care about, but also to conduct business. Uh, right after that, Singtel set up a board committee of inquiry that would investigate the fire and also benchmark current network design and contingency processes against international best practices and standards. And finally, they were also tasked to recommend appropriate improvements to prevent future occurrences and strengthen network resilience. I mean, this is all very corporate speak, right? Basically, they were saying, you know, we screwed up. <laughs> Here's a board committee to help us figure out what went wrong and how we can make sure we never do this again. Yeah, and this is the important bit. So the Infocom Development Authority, the IDA back then, launched an investigation and there were a lot of questions from the public around the infrastructure design. The fire exposed the fact that actually the Bukit Panjang Exchange was a single point of failure as connectivity services of three major internet service providers were affected due to it, with the affected open net fiber cables affecting a wide area. The fire was caused by an employee not following the maintenance procedures as well as the use of an unauthorized blowtorch. Singtel was also fined $6 million uh, for the fire incident and it was the largest fine for a telco company in Singapore history. But I can only imagine it's like a slap on the wrist for something like Singtel. We really, really rely on our mobile service providers or our, our telecom providers to consistently provide their services, right? So with the outage that happened, we realized actually we can't let this happen. For a whole part of the country to go without mobile and internet services would be horrible. To a large extent, how critical Singtel is to the rest of the network, right? Because as we could see, the fiber cables were affected. Uh, and as a result of that, other companies like Starhub also were affected. And so Singtel, again, because of its infrastructure provision, because of, of some of the, the key investments it's provided, the realization was that it cannot continue to be a single point of failure. We need to have redundancies. We need to have backups. And we can't just rely on Singtel 100% for everything. It's, it's more important, more than ever, that we can remain connected uh, despite the physical distance that we have to maintain. That was like the first major thing. And that's more of like an infrastructural and maintenance issue, right? But there was one more that I don't know if you remember this role, but in 2015, it involves Xiaxue going up against Singtel. And so is it David versus Goliath? I just don't know who's Goliath. Basically in March 2015, uh, we had Xiaxue, you know, our, our famous uh, notorious queen of bloggers. Do you think we should do an episode on Xiaxue? You know we should invite Xiaxue on. Xiaxue, if you're listening, you are cordially invited to come and sit in our podcast. You know, she's known to be an expose queen, right? We, we've always known Xiaxue uh, as a reliable source for the hottest gossip. Uh, she went on her blog this time where she kind of revealed on her blog uh, instructions from Gushcloud, one of our friends, Althea, who's been on the podcast before. Her company is a social media marketing agency where they had a network of bloggers to post complaints about the mobile services of Singtel's rivaling mobile service providers. So I don't know if you know this, but there is actually a Singapore code of advertising practice 
which actually disallows us from calling out other brands in, in advertising at the very least by name, right? We can't say like, oh, that company sucks because they do this, not like us. The code basically says that in your advertising practice, you need to be honest, fair, and decent, right? And basically... In, in this marketing effort, it seems like they would. <laughs> Asiatra called them out, right? And said like, oh, these guys, they hired bloggers to go out there and complain about Starhub and M1 on social media. In an, like almost in a marketing effort to drive subscriptions of a new mobile service plan targeted at the use, right? So it's for, uh, they don't want the use to jump onto like these other pro- uh, service providers. Instead, come to the plan that Signal has provided. So along with that reveal, you know, there were many samples of Gush Cloud's bloggers taking up the offer and actually posting complaints up on social media like calling Starhub and M1 out. Of course, this then led to an investigation uh, by the IDA. No, I remember hearing about this because, uh, Elliot, as, as we both talked about in the Influencer episode, we've both been affiliated with Gush Cloud, either as a partner. I worked at Gush Cloud as an intern. So when I heard about this, I was shocked, right? Because I was wondering who actually went out to to tell bloggers to go and slander a different company, right? It's, it's It wasn't what I remember hearing in the company. Actually, I was more insulted that I didn't get this offer for a job, you know? I mean, but jokes aside, you know, what happened was that uh, Singtel basically said, you know, they didn't do this as their initial uh, sort of statement. Later on, they had to do an apology of which Starhub M1 had accepted. Singtel then terminated its employee who had worked with Gushcloud on the campaign as the employee did not adhere to Singtel's professional standards and values. And obviously, Singtel had to end its relationship with Gushcloud. Vince Ha, Vincent Ha, one of the friends of ours, he released an apology to the firm on their negative messaging and he came out to criticize Siasha as expose for doing more harm than good to the industry. This turned to a huge, like, you know, online flame war. Siasha came back and said, oh, he was trying to divert the blame and, you know, saying that Gush Cloud's actions were not ethical. This had a trickle-down effect. We all kind of forgot it in like a couple of weeks. Bloggers all came out one by one and issued apologies on their own platforms as well. It, it, it came down to this. If people started apologizing, it means something did happen, right? There was a, There's evidence that there was that kind of campaign going on. At the end of the day, someone had to take the fall. So unfortunately, in this case, it was cash flow. Just again, using these controversies as, as a platform to analyze the impact. I think the key takeaway here is that because of the oligopolistic nature of the telecom industry, not too long ago, right? This was only in 2015 where, you know, there were only three major players, Starhub, M1, and, and Singtel. Rather than compete on services, rather than compete on what they could offer better, the fact that they had to kind of fall back on throwing dirt and throwing disses at their competitors, it kind of shows that they weren't actually focusing on providing good services, providing value to their customers. Rather, they saw the need to to really focus on on a race to the bottom, right? By by uh, shoving dirt at one another. Glad that Singtel and M1 said no. This is not right. We prefer to to compete on good terms. I'm sure there was also a competitive aspect to this, where they said, you know, we won't stand for this, and Singtel will have to take the PR blow. Uh, but now, if you look at the competition in Singapore, with as you mentioned, Circles, My Republic, again, the focus is is on hey, here are our services. It's better because of X, Y, Z reasons. You have to make the choice to switch out from an existing service, not because we're saying 
that they suck, but more because we're saying we are better, right? We're providing something that's that's better. I'm personally on Circle's life right now because, you know, unlimited data is the best thing. You know, this show is made through our blood, sweat and tears. Uh, and sometimes we record it on our phone as well. So you could be a title sponsor if you like. Okay, so Singtel's revenue uh, in 2020 was $16.54 billion. So if Singtel wants to give any of its $16.54 billion to this homegrown podcast, you know, we'll gladly take it. Or any of the telecom companies. Look, really all we care about is uh, how can we tell your story, huh? You know, all these controversies aside, I think it's important to take the whole package, right? So Singtel is, is quite a fundamental part of our story. It's a fundamental part of our development. It's a fundamental part of actually our place in the world because a lot of countries will know Singapore through Singtel. Their office tower, right, which was built in the 1980s, is in the central region of Singapore. It's called Palm Center. It's this tall building and you can see the Singtel logo really big on it. Like that's a signal of, of actually one of the institutions of Singapore. And so it's important to remember that, that there's a lot to be proud about Singtel, uh, you know, despite its controversy. Thankfully, they've learned from it. They've moved forward from it. Whether it continues to remain a part of Singapore ultimately will depend on how much they can stay relevant, how much they can evolve, and how much they can compete on good faith terms, right? So I think I think that's a lot to, to think about for Singtel. With that being said, you know, parting thoughts for this is I'm very grateful that we have uh, Singtel around, uh, keeping us well connected most of the time. And without them, honestly, you know, the, the, the foresight that they've shown us in growing uh, the nation as a whole has always been there. I'm pretty grateful. I'm lucky to have learned about Singtel a bit more today. All right. Thank you everyone so much for tuning in for another episode of SG explain if you guys have stories you want to share with us topics you want us to cover as always our social media platform mm-hmm.